I sent my tapes everywhere. Um, I got hundreds and hundreds of rejections. I mean, really, nobody wanted a woman sportscaster. People said, you know, I'll hire a woman over my dead body. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, she's the former heavy metal DJ who went on to become the first woman in American TV history to host a broadcast network sports series, anchoring pregame coverage of the MLB games. So how did this pioneer pave the way for women in sports broadcasting? You're about to find out. Hannah Storm, welcome to No Limits. Oh, it's so fun being here. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to have you here. I've been an admirer of your career for some time now. You were at the early show at CBS, the host. So I got to CBS just after. I know you you were on weekends. Yes, Mm -hmm. you did. You did the five years there, but most of your career has been in the field of sports journalism. And you, Sports Center. Uh, host of Sports Center. You're an author. You are a producer. You have your own production company. Right. Uh, you have a foundation that's very near and dear that we're going to get to about your life and helping children. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were the first woman to ever solo host. This is crazy to me. What year was this? It was. I mean, I was at a tenure at NBC where uh, Dick Ebersol, who ran NBC Sports, just I mean, he was fantastic. We had almost every sports property out there. And I was the first woman, I think you were going to say, to solo host a major sports um, broadcast. So I solo hosted World Series, NBA playoffs, NBA finals, Olympics. I mean, it was, you know, the list went on and on. But it was this the real glory days. Um, certainly, uh, and NBC Sports now obviously had, they just had the Super Bowl, they have the Olympics, but uh, back in the day, they, they pretty much had everything. So it was an incredible decade to be there. And we definitely broke a lot of ground, particularly at the network level, uh, for a, a woman. Absolutely. You know, hosting hosting major sporting events. That is definitely a part of your story. And mm-hmm. I want to get to some of the other elements in all of that. When it comes to your story, your dad was, already really into the sports industry. Your mom was in real estate. Yeah. My dad was this like hotshot young sports executive when I was growing up. So we lived all around the country, which is why my mother got into real estate because we (laughs) bought and sold so many houses. That's such a good. So did you always think that you wanted to be in the sports industry yourself? I knew that I really was into acting when I was in high school and I love performing. And I was even my school mascot. So I've what always was your been, school mascot? I was a wildcat. <laughs> was there a head covering to be um, a wildcat? I did not have a head covering, but I must say that I did. I went to Notre Dame, but I got into Duke. And I must say that I actually received calls at my house. Would you please come and be a blue devil? Oh, my God. So I apparently had a pretty good reputation as a mascot. <laughs> oh. 
that's I think hilarious. that's kind of funny. That's really um, funny. But um, I was always a ham. And, you know, when, when I was growing up and it wasn't a school night, we went to sporting events, usually basketball games. Most of his career was spent in the ABA and NBA. So I remember going to these games and how fun it was. And I really did want to go into broadcasting when I was at Notre Dame. And my immediate thought went to sports because it was part of my DNA and something that we enjoyed. And I associated it with something fun. And I just thought, well, it might be more fun than sitting in a city council meeting or something (laughs) like that. And uh, I was right at the time, didn't quite grasp how daunting a prospect it would be to do that as a woman. Uh, But at the same time, that really made me all the more determined to do it anyway. Yeah, tell mm-hmm. tell me I can't do something. Right. That's oh, what I wanted more than yeah, ever. Exactly. When you were in school then, were you studying communications? Was that the path? I was a double major in communications and international government. Did yeah. you ever think maybe politics was the path? I, I, I did think about that. And um, I've always, one of the great things about being a, a government major is you do write quite a bit. And so I always give young people advice that want to go into broadcasting. And I say, first and foremost, you've got to be a good writer. Yes. No matter what it is, you have to be able to write, you have to be able to formulate uh, thoughts. And also, you know, all of that relates to storytelling. Yeah. So it's really fundamental and really important. And I think that sometimes not everyone realizes that. So that was a that was a very specific skill that I got out of that. And really working at CBS, working in news, I loved it. Um, and I did a lot of our, you know, big political interviews. Um, I, you know, was on Capitol Hill some and at the White House. And I absolutely loved it. It was incredible. How did you get the oh, first well, this journalism pretty jobs? Good because there was no internet at the time. Right. So I got some trade publications. Um, Radio and Records was one at the time. And then there was actually an old magazine called Broadcasting Inc. And I answered want ads. Um, so if there was a want ad for this job or that, I, I I made a tape. You know, I sent my tapes everywhere. Um, I got up hundreds and hundreds of rejections. I mean, really, nobody wanted a woman sportscaster people said you know i'll hire a woman over my dead body or my audience won't accept a woman my my lead sportscaster he doesn't want to work with a woman so wasn't exactly pc back in the day and um and so my father and i were going on a little jog and uh, we used to go running together and he said you know there are a lot more radio stations in the world than television stations so let's think about that and i was like you're right dad and And then he was like, and basically, how about just doing anything on Mm -hmm. the air? And you love music. And I was like, absolutely. So what I did is I went um, to a studio. I basically manufactured a like a DJ tape. And so I had two tapes, one from college because I'd extensively worked in TV and radio all at my four years at Notre Dame. So I already had some, some tape there. So I made a, I just kind of made up like a music, like a DJ, <laughs> DJ tape. And lo and behold, I got two job offers, one to do news in San Angelo, Texas, which is kind of remote. And then one to be a heavy metal DJ in Corpus Christi, Texas. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Of course, you I took were the, a heavy metal course, DJ, which is where I got my name, Hannah Storm. <laughs> That's my, my Hannah is my given name, but Storm is not my last name. My last name was Storin when I was born. So I was Hannah Storm at C101 by the sea. And, uh, were you into heavy metal music? Um, I was into rock. 
Okay. Um, all forms of music, which is really funny because my daughter is now in the music industry, which is, but, you know, I've always loved music. So um, I, you know, it was a headbanger era of heavy metal music. <laughs> it was like the glory days of, you know, the Scorpions and Quiet Riot, Def Leppard, Hagar Sean, Aronson and Tree, Van Halen. And we would play all those back to back to back. <laughs> so my shift was 10 at night to two in the morning. And we were actually licensed in Sinton and Taft, Texas. So we were... The actual studio was in the middle of farm country. And so I had a CB radio in my car and I would drive there very late at night. And it was there were farms all around where our station was located. Our entire station was about the size of the room that you and I are sitting in now. And I would have to get out of my car and chase all the cows away from (laughs) the gate that were wandering around the neighborhood and really quickly open the gate, drive my car through, get out and shut the gate before any cows got on the property of the radio station. So every, literally every this night. This is definitely the, the makings of a movie. By I, the way. I, yeah. And cows do not scare easily. I don't know if you know that fact. I know you learn a lot of things on the show, but I just want you to know if you ever have to scare a cow, almost impossible. So um, yeah, and the generator would go down and I would like crank it up by hand. You know, <laughs> it was so funny. It was a, it was a great job. And then I got more tape and then I got hired at, um, well, I saw another job offer through another want ad um, for an ABC station in Houston called KSRR and uh, 97 Rock. And so I took my little tape and I really still wanted to do sports. And I saw that it was mm-hmm. spinning records on the weekends and morning and afternoon drive sports. So um, I took my resume and my tape and I drove to Houston and I waited in the lobby and I asked the receptionist to let me know what the program director looked like when he when he walked out so for the smart. end of the day. <laughs> and so he did. And so I just popped up out of my seat and stuck my hand out and gave him my resume and my tape and just said, hey, I hope you get a chance to look at it. And sure enough, um, like a week later, I got a call and I went and interviewed. So after about, I don't know, eight months in Corpus Christi, I ended up going going to Houston to work in radio and radio is radio is such an incredible background for television and virtually every great sportscaster of of my era a hundred percent of them started in radio and I still love radio to this day your your story reminds me of the women who created the skim the newsletter um they 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 gave this advice about being a stalker but be a limited stalker so you standing outside waiting for the uh, program, program director, director that's your limited stalker move and my producer taylor dunn got her job here at abc news by waiting for initially many years ago by waiting outside of of the door of somebody else's office and wow. found her way into the so it still can work yeah. now you have um, to be tenacious yeah, and you really without do. being obnoxious. Right. right? It's, it's a balancing act. Right. Were you at the time, were you doubting yourself? Were you thinking I'm making the right steps? Were you feeling like, oh, how did I end up in Corpus Christi? What was going through your no, head? No, I just was I'm very big on visualization. So I had seen on television um, the Olympics and the really the only women who were doing prominent who had any kind of prominent sports role were at the Olympics. That's the only place that you would see it. And usually it was women from the morning show. So it was either Kathleen Sullivan, who was right. the Olympics or at CBS or, or uh, Jane Pauley when they were at ABC. So I mean, at NBC, excuse me. So those were my role models. All the other sportscasters were men. So it was really hard to find a, a woman to identify with. So my goals, my really tangible goals out of college were, I want to host an Olympics and I want to host 
Sister Network morning show. And so I remember distinctly even being a lot of what we had to do after hours where we would go to um, events and just nightclubs and stuff like that for when you're a radio DJ, that's the kind of thing you do, right? You have a corporate appearance at or corporate's probably right. even a, too big a word. Uh, Please, but, but, welcome! But yeah, it'd be like, you know, so you'd go introduce some band or have some contests or whatever. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm in Corpus Christi. I graduated from college when I was 20, so I'm like 20, or 20 years old. I'm in Corpus Christi and I'm thinking, but I am going to do those things. Like this is, I don't mm. know what the path is because the path is, isn't spelled out right. for somebody who wants to do what I want to do, especially because no w- women have ever done this. But I, I could see it in my mind and I, I literally clearly kept that vision in my mind. That's awesome. Yeah. And it took a lot of risks along the way. Like my first full-time TV job, I went to Charlotte, North Carolina, where 80% of what I talked about was NASCAR. That was terrifying. I, I had no idea what NASCAR was. and I, But I always figured, you know, with enough hard work, you can figure anything out yes. and, and people will respect you. And if I guess as long I, as you as long as you learn it, as long as well, you, you take it on yourself. Right. You know, you figure out how to get the interview done. Sure. So you get through that and then you get there and then you put your head down. You absolutely figure out what you need to know, which is what I did. And I remember all the drivers because they were at that time. That's where it was completely corporately driven. So Mm -hmm. it was all about what tire you have, you know, what company you're driving for. And so the drivers in NASCAR were, were hyper aware of the fact that they needed coverage. And so they were incredible. They would sit and explain basics to you about this, that um, it was in their best interest. And they really understood that. And at the time, it was even a smaller sport than it is now. Um, And uh, I mean, I've never, never experienced anything like that time in Charlotte, where the actual athletes the people who were competing, were almost partners with the people who were covering the sport. And it was, again, you know, something that they wanted you to understand, Mm -hmm. they were willing to go to whatever lengths they had to to explain it It was a really cool time. That is really cool. And really interesting, too, because I think when you're coming in as an outsider into anything, and I I felt this way early on in my career, it was this balancing act of who you can trust to ask the simple questions of versus Mm -hmm. who it's going to backfire on you. And, you know, you don't want to look like you don't know what you're doing, but you need to you need to find allies and people that you can ask Mm-hmm. The simple questions. And, 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 and the smartest people will understand that someone who asks questions is confident. Yeah. Because it's really because of insecurity that Such we don't ask point. questions. And so the people who who are who are going to get it are, are the people that you want to align yourself with. When you ultimately did get into sports journalism, you were talking earlier about some of the sexism you faced, the fact that not only were program directors worried about the viewers, but the actual person sitting next to you on set was oftentimes an issue. How did you handle that? That was, you know, I had a lot of um, incidents along the way, not just with that, but sometimes with when you're dealing with sports franchises, you know, when I would get to NBC, you know, certain teams, depending on who the general manager was, who the owner was, who the coach was, you know, they weren't comfortable having women around. There were some franchises that they would say, well, you know, you can't interview my players before a game, you know, we'll let the, your male counterparts do it, but you can't. Because um, what was their reasoning behind that? Distracting. Wow. You know, they're distracting or we just don't want you, you know, we're not. He can't focus on the game because he spoke to a woman (laughs) before the game. Like it was like really funny. Yeah. Um, And then I had um, also situations that I didn't really care for particularly. So I remember when I was in Houston and I'm kind of 
jumping around your question, but but sometimes storytelling is the best way. You're a great um, storyteller. So yeah, thank you. Um, so there were a couple of situations in Houston. So one with the Astros, there was a pitcher named Bob Nepper, and the Astros were very good at the time. They ended up you know playing the Mets in the NLCS. I mean they were they were contenders, um, but he was uh, extremely um, conservative, and he felt like it was very inappropriate and went against his beliefs to have a woman in the locker room. The best thing to do, I found, and I thought in that situation was absolutely to to respect him and, and his beliefs because he said that he wouldn't do an interview with anyone if I was in the locker room. So then that put me in a position where I was going to put my colleagues in, in a tough spot. So I said, well, would you mind if we, on the nights that you pitch, could we just meet at a neutral spot? Um. And and do our interview, and he said that's because per- I didn't I didn't really like going in locker rooms either. Mm-hmm. I felt like that was it's it's just uncomfortable for everybody. They're dirty, nasty, smelly, gross places, and really no one should have to go in one. And all my male counterparts hate going into, so we all did. But this was a situation where it was very gender specific. And you know what was so great is we ended up. First of all, I got all these one on one interviews with this guy every every time he pitched, you know. And then we developed, I guess, because I was so respectful of him, he was respectful of me and then the whole team followed suit mm-hmm. it was really you know you have to approach people sometimes as individuals and and sometimes you know you have to understand that relationships are paramount that it's not always your way or the highway that you're not always just going to be the the proverbial bull in the china shop have you always inherently known that or was there a turning point along the way that made you realize that honestly i think my dad being in the business yeah. i understood that the business that that the sports business is about people in the end, and that it's about people from the front office to the people playing the game. And so I got that. And and by the same token, the Houston Oilers had the first starting black quarterback in the NFL, this guy Warren Moon, who had come from the Edmonton Oilers, who now he's obviously a household name, but, but Warren Moon was a trailblazer in his own right in the NFL. I uh, NFL locker rooms are there. Are, there are a lot of people in there. There are a lot of men. I was very young, and I, I it was just something I didn't want to do. I didn't want to go in the locker room. He we very much related to each other, as I was, you know, young woman breaking into Two this outsiders. Uh, entirely male business, and he on his part, which I've always admired, he came outside of the locker room and conducted all his interviews outside wow. the locker room so that I wouldn't be, I wouldn't stand out and be ostracized in any way. So that was a cool experience too. So all the media interviewed him outside the locker room. So there were just a lot of different ways to go about it. And, not, and it was situational. You know, one thing with the Oilers, the Gamblers, the Rock, you know, whatever the team was, whatever the situation was, I just tried to uh, work it out. 2010, ESPN suspended one of your colleagues at the time, the Pardon the Interruption host. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony I, Kornheiser. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what? I, 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 that was. This is now eight years ago, so it's definitely not top of mind for you. Probably you've moved on from it. It's so funny to think about because I had come to ESPN from, uh, as you mentioned, from the early show from CBS. So at the time, um, and and styles, I think clo- this all had to do with an outfit that I had on, um, and he made a, a really inappropriate remark about. Um, 
about an outfit that I was wearing. The funny thing is, it was an outfit that I had worn on the early show multiple times. So it was uh, Stuart Weitzman uh, <laughs> boots, um, a plaid skirt, and um, like a Dolce & Gabbana, like a red sweater. Can I right? just stop you there for one second? <laughs> Here's what This is what makes me sad. What makes me sad is even after all of this, even after your career and everything that Mm -hmm. you've accomplished, you still, not that you feel this, but you're explaining to our viewer what the outfit was so that everybody is aware that you weren't crossing any lines, that you weren't doing. But like the fact of the matter is that that you feel, and I don't want to put feelings on you, but if, but it's, it's like you still to this day have to defend the outfit because of what this this other person had to say. Yeah, it's it's really sad because obviously, you know, any any time things like this happen, it it comes from a place of some form of ignorance, yeah. right? About about you know, and judgment. Yeah. Um. And you know, we live now in an extraordinarily judgmental society. Um, which is unfortunate. Uh, but back then, you know, he made this, you know, completely inappropriate comment. And um, and it, it's just funny to think about because, uh, A, obviously there's, you know, no sense of fashion there. But, um, <laughs> yes. but, but um, you know, when I think about the way that sort of fashion evolved and the way that that you know, women on TV are perceived and what we should wear, shouldn't wear. I remember when I was at NBC, I always wore suits because I kind of like looked like one of the guys, Mm -hmm. suits and jackets. And then, you know, morning television has always kind of led the way in that regard. So things became like more dresses, more feminine. And then when I went back into sports, I would say that I dressed probably on the more more like a morning show host Mm -hmm. would. And I brought that sensibility, I think, to ESPN. And now the funny thing is that that that's gone way, way past me, because now I'm definitely still one of the more conservative. I dress probably more more on the quote unquote conservative side, because that whole that whole fashion train, you know, has has kept going. You know, in a way that women really feel, and rightly so, empowered to wear whatever the heck they want and whatever they feel good in, whatever that makes them feel confident when they go on television, because confidence is is key when you're mm-hmm. on TV, right? Um, or you know, doing anything where you're like sort of putting yourself out there. And I really respect the fact that you know people are more and more now, especially women, feeling like they can be individuals and express themselves in in not only in their opinions but in what they wear and in every way that they have every right to. So to have somebody sort of pass judgment on me on that on that kind of really superficial level, yeah. um, that wasn't a good time. That was that was unpleasant. And you know what it did. The it really doesn't come down to the individual that said that. It comes down to the fact that when you say something like that about someone else, and particularly about a colleague in the business, you open the door for haters. You give you implicitly when you criticize someone, you give other people permission to do the same, and that's where you're empowering all you're opening the floodgates and you're empowering other people to say wow if this man who i really respect and i watch all the time if he thinks this about her i'm going to pile on yeah you know and that's where you don't understand the damage that's done and that's why 
I think you have to be very, very careful what you say about other people, other public figures, um, other people in the business. You just you just can't go there because you are you're encouraging other people to do the same. And that's just the sad reality. And they have access to you. So the amount of hate that I got because of that comment, that was much worse than just a colleague having a bad judgment to make a comment like that. Mm-hmm. It was it was that it exploded um, into, you know, a world of hate that that was wrong, that I didn't obviously no one ever deserves that but but that's where we all have to understand and remember every time you're tweeting or talking or you're asked about someone you have to really understand that the implications of that the way that media and social media are working now are far-reaching so we we all it, it just it's a it's a great reminder especially i would imagine the the frustration of someone who has worked as hard as you have and and when you see people in roles like the roles that you have held, you don't get there because you wear a certain outfit. Right. You get there because you work around the clock. You make trade-offs in your own life. You make choices that are not the easy, fun choices sometimes to be there. So to be questioned on that level and, and to be targeted on that level, that's where I feel like if I was in your shoes, that's where I would feel the most anger because it's a matter of you don't understand what I have done, like how hard I have worked in my lifetime, what I've given up in order to be in this role. And you just smear it and take it all down like that. And to your point also, in this day and age, when there's Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and millions of other social media outlets for people, it's so easy to say nasty things, um, which isn't a revelation. But in our role, how do you think about that in in a world that is sort of pushing constantly for more opinion, more editorialization of what you're seeing as a journalist. I think that there is a big distinction between personal attacks and which I don't think there is ever any place for. Um, and if you have something either supportive or or constructive or something that you need to get off your chest, obviously a one-on-one conversation is always best. I had this conversation. In fact, it was almost an, uh, an argument I had with my daughter. So I have two college age daughters and they wanted me to publicly um, stand up for uh, something that happened to one of my colleagues. And they felt like if I didn't publicly stand up for it, if I didn't um, go on Twitter and rant and rave about it, that, that implicitly I was agreeing with what had happened to this person. And I said, no, here's what I do. I pick up the phone and I talk one-on-one with this person, right? Like that's like, that's real. That's a, that's a Mm -hmm. real relationship. Yeah. But what we do now is we see people playing out relationships and sitting on the sides of issues on Twitter or Facebook or wherever. And what that's really doing is accomplishing nothing. You know, you might get you might stand on on one side of a person or the other. And so, you know, half the people are going to like you, half the people are going to disagree with you. But what are you really accomplishing? Are you really doing anything? Do you really even have a relationship with that person? Are you really servicing them in any way? Are you being a true friend? No, it's almost more no, self-serving it's than about, being a real friend. It's about your followers. Right, right. It's about your likes. It has nothing to do with a real relationship with that person. I'm a relationship person. 
And that's just the way I, that is just the way I deal with it. So you will never see me unless it's something complimentary where mm-hmm. I thought, and I don't know Carson Wentz from Adam. Okay. The, the quarterback that got injured with Philly, that was incredibly classy, that stood by and all he did was make positive comments about Nick Foles, his backup. And it yep. was so great for the team. So I might say something like, boy, I so admire the way this person handled that situation. How great was that for the team? I will say something like that. But you would never hear me ever deride or or get on any individual, you know, that I felt like I wouldn't call up the telephone and speak to mm-hmm. personally one-on-one. Issues, that's a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. You know, institutions that need to be accountable, absolutely. You know, those kinds of things. A hundred and ten percent. You know, if it's USA Gymnastics or the NFL or whoever it is, of course, those are opinions that are valued. Those are stories that need to be pushed. Those are things that we need to talk about. It's incumbent upon us to do so as journalists. Individuals, not so much. How do you think about the fact that so many sports, maybe maybe it's a totally inaccurate thing to say that sports have become more politicized. What, What do you think of that? They, everything has. Okay, so I that's what I was going to say, that I believe sports have become more politicized, everything but I don't see it from your standpoint. Everything has intertwined, yeah. right? So everything has. Once, once political figures bring sports into the conversation, it immediately becomes a sports story, right? So, you know, once, I mean... That, that that's that's the line. If you're if you're trying to draw the line between like, where should we talk about politics when, you know, as as a sports entity, it's when sports stories become political, when they are when they are brought by the political community into into the conversation. So, in other words, the national anthem, right, standing for the national anthem, that's that's a completely legitimate sports story to talk about it intertwines with politics and personal beliefs and you know a whole nother large spectrum of issues in our society and so that becomes part of the sports conversation that becomes part of and it's incumbent upon you to cover that and the the breadth of that um and that's you know sports intersects with and has intersected in recent years with a lot of very important issues, social issues. And there are usually stories that drive that, like a Penn State or like Michael Sam or like what happened with the owner of the L.A. Clippers, you know, where we're talking about issues in sports like uh, domestic violence or sexuality or a sexual orientation or racism Um bigotry in all its forms. Those are things that we used to never talk about in sports because sports was considered the quote unquote escape. It was like, well, right. back on the field, you know, all about X's and O's and all these subjects. And and frankly, these important journalistic voices were not heard from in sports. And then all of these really important issues weren't discussed in sports because sports was the escape. But now things have happened where that has opened up the breadth of what we talk about in sports. I, I, I think it's great because sports is a microcosm of life and you know, it's, it's intertwined with everything else. So it's the the cool thing too, is it's really expanded what we think about as a sports journalist, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a more interesting job for you. Well, 
Maybe it, there's more opportunity <clears throat> for others is really where I was going, because mm. from the traditional sports journalists of what we used to see is now the face of sports journalism is much, much more diverse than it used to be. And all of these important voices are weighing in on issues that affect and are, are critical to the sports world. So I think it's really opened up the the, the job market, so to speak, for, um, you know, who is a sportscaster and what does a sportscaster look like and sound like and what's their perspective? Now it's so much broader than it used to be. What was the impetus for starting your production company? This was about a decade ago now, yeah, Brainstorming yeah. I, I, Productions. I, I, I left CBS News and I had always wanted to just have control over some level of content. So when I was in news, I, I always have had this really strong um, creative sense. So I wrote a couple of books because you can do that when you're when you're in news. But, um, you know, what you don't always have the chance to is create your own programming. And so when I left CBS and I wasn't sure where I was going to go next, um, I wanted to grandfather that into wherever I went. So I started that um, out of my daughter's bedroom. I, I was like, you're gone. You go, you're going to sleep with your sister. And um, I'm starting my little production company. And I, at the, I simultaneously started a production company and a foundation. Like, like really at the same time, because wherever I went next, and I'm really happy I did it this way, I wanted to grandfather both of those into whatever contracts or wherever I went next. I'd always worked for big, huge, huge companies. And I thought, I want to have my own. I want ownership of something. I want to be able to to be my own boss in a sense. Um, you know, I might not make the large part of my income that way, but it will feed my creative sense and and, you know, feed my soul. That's a great and, business decision yeah, on your I, part. Too. I, I think it really has been. And um, I also, with a foundation, you know, when you're in news necessarily, you can't put your name on a, on a foundation. And um, all the doctors that I had spoken to really wanted my name on my foundation because the, the medical condition that we deal with is very specific and very, um, it, it bears a little bit of explanation. And so they had, they had advised me, they had said, could you please make it the Hannah Storm Foundation because your name has a, a high recognition level and we can take care of explaining the medical part. <laughs> that can be part two, but mm -hmm. part one, we need we need people to just kind of sit up and, and take notice because it has your name on it. So uh, that was another like very practical, practical decision that I made before and the I foundation, went to work for another company. The foundation is very personal to you. It is. Talk right. a little bit right. about, first of all, what it does, <laughs> what you do and, and what happened in your lifetime. Right. So I was born with a port wine stain, which you probably have seen someone that almost looks like the way it got its name is it looks like someone took a glass of red wine and just spilled it all over your face and, and it's permanent. And so mine covered my left eye and underneath my eye um, when I was born. And then my parents Back in the day, the technology, laser technology wasn't there to really take care of it the way that it is now. But they just, I went to a series of doctors and surgeries all growing up um, because it is right there on your face. And it really always looked like someone just like socked me in the eye. I looked like I had a shiner all the time. And so it's not covered by plastic surgery. Um, these kinds of surgeries aren't covered by insurance because they're considered plastic surgery, which is such a misnomer because they are completely disfiguring. They can affect your vision. Sometimes the birthmark is on the brain. Um, sometimes it can even be deadly. So it's the technical term is a vascular anomaly, and it comes in a lot of forms. And a child can be born. It's something that can escalate quickly. A doctor might not know what they're looking at, and then all of a sudden this child is just 
looking completely disfigured and it can affect your everything from your breathing to your to your eyesight as I mentioned so many things so um, what I wanted to do was start a foundation for education and then so that people and doctors and dermatologists could understand um, I actually wanted to start dealing with some of the CPT the insurance codes which we've got a couple of those changed so that certain things can be covered That's by huge. insurance, which is huge. And, and we're going to go back and do more of that. Um, and then actually just paying for surgeries. So we paid for surgeries for kids around the world. And um, the surgeries are all done either here in New York or in Berlin. And they're all done by the same surgeon. And he is the premier sur- surgeon in the world. He's a South African doctor who has an institute at uh, Lenox Hill, a birthmark institute, but he is he is literally the best doctor in the world. So he does wow. all our surgeries. Well, I'm certain there so, are many families all over the world who are so appreciative. They for find that. us, you know, it's great. I mean, that's a great thing about the internet, right? Is somebody can find you, somebody from Belarus or a small town in China can can find you and, uh, you know, write you and get in touch with you. You know, we just got a packet uh, a couple of weeks ago from uh, a mother in India, you know, and the and the stories are are super heartbreaking because, you know, nobody really knows where to turn. I mean, my parents didn't, you know, and um, they just don't know where to go for help or how they could possibly afford it because it's very expensive. And most kids need like 10 around 10 surgeries. Is that, did yeah. you have, how many surgeries had, did you end up having? I had probably seven or eight, and then I just, you know, gave up because the, it looks better, but I, I mean, luckily I work in a, in a industry where I wear a lot of makeup. Well, I would <laughs> never know. I, I'm I really have... good at covering it up. Like if I, if we were sitting here and I didn't have makeup on, you'd probably say that, you know, somebody hit me in the face. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So one of our viewers actually wrote in and you're a mother, three mm-hmm. girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and this viewer wrote in and um, and and she wrote in that she loves the show. But one of her issues is we never ask who picks up the kids. Oh, right. Who does the grocery right, shopping? Right, right, all of that. Right. So your daughters are mostly grown up at this uh, I point. Two in college. Two in college. And then one in high school. So. Along the way, mm-hmm. who was doing that in your home? You know, um, we, it was just kind of changed through the times. But what I did is I always figured out what my kids sort of school schedule were. Where were we in our life? And then I only looked at jobs that I felt were the hours worked best. Mm. So which is pretty interesting. So when they were really little, I was at NBC and I worked on weekends. They didn't know, but I was home all week and the sports all worked on weekends. Then when I went to CBS, I, I started this long, long, about 15 years of working only morning and early shows. Like I never looked at anything else because I thought if I can get up in the morning, super, super early, like four o'clock in the morning and then be home when they come home from school, that's my money. That 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 That's like the max time. Yeah. You know, and be yeah. on weekends. So it's really changed through the years. And obviously, there are some travel involved. Um, my husband is also in broadcasting. And so we managed to, through the years, not both be gone at the same time, almost ever. Um, and that worked out really well. And there were a couple of Olympics where we both had to go and grandparents came in. But um, I'm a big, big cook. 
So I cook like crazy. What's your I love favorite going thing to, to cook? the grocery store? I cook. I literally cook everything. Like we could do an entire hour on oh. on food. Well, I like, let's I was, let's do that because I'm a big food fan. I, I like to eat. But. I love to cook. <laughs> I cook all the time, and it's sort of my passion. You know, creative people. Yeah. A lot of times you'll find that they like to cook, so I love that. And I have you know friends over all the time. My house is kind of the go to, and so um, I would say I do a lot of that stuff. I do all the you know all the pickups. Go to all the games. Um, and um, I would say that it was pretty much dominated, though, by if I had to give any advice to like a working mom, it's like so hard because it's hard to really have choices sometimes, mm-hmm. right? Like your job is what it is. But the, the thing that I always did was like, OK, where are they? Are they, you know, in preschool? And then I want to be around, you know, I just tried to maximize, like, look at the time of day that was really important to be around, which I think when they come home, dinner, sporting events later when they play, you know, you want to try to be in as much of that as possible. And just, you know, you just grab your time with them, you know, because they don't talk half the time, especially when they're teenagers. So you kind of got to hang around in case somebody wants to say something. (laughs) And driving in the car is a good one. Yeah. My parents would joke that they weren't allowed to speak to me in the mornings before school when I was a teenager. Right. Uh, What's been along the way the toughest lesson for you? Um, Oh, I don't know. I just think patience. I think yeah. patience is really hard. I think when you're the kind of person that's just go, go, go all the time um, and you're driven and you're focused and you're so serious and you want your show to be so good and, you know, you're just you're just, you know, pushing yourself, pushing everybody else, you know, and you just, you know, you just um, I just think patience is just it's a hard, you know, if there was like one virtue that I would say that I'm sure that impatience has really, really served me well. Um in a lot of ways. Uh, But at the same time, if there's one thing that I always have to remind myself of, and that if I could even go back and just say, I wish I was a little more this, it would be patient. Patience, I think, to your point, impatience serves you well professionally. It helps you get ahead in some cases, Mm -hmm. in a lot of them. Having patience internally, it serves you well internally. You you feel better. You feel happier. You you actually enjoy the journey and the moments along the way more when you have that. But I'm the same way. I'm impatient and I want everything. You know, I want to work and see the uh, results of that work. Right, right. Worst advice you've received along the way? Oh, my gosh. Um... <laughs> well, that is such a good question. Oh, my gosh. No one has ever asked me that. I think it was, yeah, good job, Rebecca. I love the, I love the questions no one's asked before. Rebecca, Rebecca. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, I would say it was in my first job when I was at that radio station when I was and I, I got it. Got, got, I got the job offer to go to the big city and go to Houston. I was sitting there at Corpus Christi. My boss was like, you're just going to go and get eaten alive. Like, mm. I would really advise you. I would just advise you to not go. You know, you're just going to go and you, you could fail and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> That's all I needed. I'm like, I'm so out of here. <laughs> but that I would say that was the worst piece of advice I ever got. It's funny you say that because I remember sitting at a dinner table. I was it was like some of my parents' friends had invited us to this dinner and there was a woman at the dinner that my parents didn't know that was a friend of them. And I was, you know, in either junior high or high school and they were asking me what I wanted to do. And I said, I want to move to New York. And she looked at me and she's she was from New York. She's like, you will be eaten alive oh, yeah. in New York. Oh, there you go. And eaten alive phrase again. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, to be honest, I I looked at it as, well, this lady has been in New York, so maybe she knows something that I don't know. It didn't ever keep me 
from going to New York. Yeah. It made me want to be a stronger person. And actually what I thought when she said it was, do I come across as somebody who's not that strong? Like what? Mm. Anyway, I don't I don't think that that was the case. I think no. it's just like something that someone would say. Well, if they want to keep you somewhere, too, they'll yeah. say that. Yeah, right? totally. So, but, you know, always it just comes down to betting on yourself. Right. So, yes. I mean, you asked about my production company. I I've set aside a portion of my paycheck ever since that day to go to that company and bet on myself and bet that it would work and bet that I could do it. That that takes a lot of discipline and self-belief and, you know, really just old fashioned nose to the grindstone. But but there are a lot of times where you have to take chances and bet on yourself. And, um, you know, if you're a hard worker, it's usually a pretty good bet. I would bet on you any day, Hannah Storm. Yeah. Thank you so much for Thanks. joining me on No so Limits. Fun. It was really Thanks. great. Thank it was you. Awesome. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Anna Bermudez. She is the CEO and founder of Tagit, which is a mobile app that lets you buy items from your favorite TV shows. Anna is a first-generation American and the oldest of six children. She was born and raised in San Diego, California, and then went on to earn a Bachelor of Business Administration and Finance from the University of Notre Dame. She began her career as a wealth manager management advisor at Merrill Lynch, where she spent six years and then co-founded a registered investment advisory firm, which is when she says she got the entrepreneurial bug. Anna says she grew up in a very humble home and spent most of her childhood sharing a bed with her mom and two siblings. They shared a room in her grandparents' two-bedroom, one-bathroom home where her uncle also lived. Anna says that as she grew older, she attended state and federally funded after-school programs that opened her eyes to the value of education and money. She says she soon learned that wealth creation played a very important role in creating opportunities for generational wealth and financial independence. Much later in life, when Anna became a wealth management advisor, she said she used her then-client's advice as she built her career in finance. Early in her career, she saved money and invested in two real estate properties. When she came up with the idea for Tagit, the only thing left for her to do was start the business, but she had a few personal obligations that she says she had to fulfill first. As the oldest of six, she co-parents her younger siblings with her mom. In 2011, she was helping her younger brother get through college, so as soon as he graduated, she says she knew she had a few years to start a company and gain some traction before her youngest brother went off to college in 2015. The first steps she took as an entrepreneur were to research the technology market and hire attorneys. She says she had to incorporate herself and ensure that her patents were filed before making Tagit available to the public. In the beginning of the company, Anna says she tried to balance her work and creating Tagit, but it was just too much to handle. She says she quickly learned that she had to make a decision between a well-established career and taking a leap of faith to start a company in tech. She had a savings account, retirement accounts, and some stock that she planned on using to bootstrap Tagit. She quickly began networking within the Notre Dame Alumni Network, entered the Notre Dame Business Plan Competition in 2012, and explored the San Diego startup scene where she began to join and win pitch competitions. She says she had to hustle and learn on the job from the very first day. 
Tagit was founded in 2012, and the Tagit app was published in 2013. For the first two years, the company was financed with savings, credit, friends and family money, and loans. But over the last three years, she's been financed by investors. Anna says that raising capital to scale Tagit has been a challenge. She says the key to overcoming this obstacle has been her relentless persistence and faith in the success of the business. If she could go back and give herself advice, she says she would remind herself that fear is self-imposed and it's the biggest deterrent of progress. She would tell herself to not let others dictate what she can and cannot do, and she would remind herself that she's worth it. I really love Anna's story, not only for the tenacity, her humble beginnings, but also this great practical advice along the way, starting with those pitch competitions, making a decision at some point along the way that she would either have to focus entirely on her day job or focus entirely on that big new thing in front of her. And thank goodness that she chose Tag It because it's become a huge success. Congratulations to Honor Bermudez, founder and CEO of Tag It, for being our No Limits entrepreneur of the week. I wish you continued success. Thank you so much for all that you're doing to exemplify the greatest talents of women. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as an entrepreneur, send me your nomination to No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I do read all of those emails. I love hearing from you. I really appreciate all of you who respond on Instagram and say you're going to send me something to the email. It's been great. And I'm really enjoying hearing new stories about new jobs and new opportunities that all of you are pursuing. So thank you. And thanks to those of you who are spreading the word about the podcast, who are going in and subscribing to our podcast and reviewing our podcast. That is really helpful too. And it helps others find the show. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use our hashtag no limits. And I want to thank the team here that helps make this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. Thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.